Well, we are in week two of our series on uh, Elijah. Uh, Last week, Elijah spoke the word of God to King Ahab, and the result was a three-year drought. And we saw God's supernatural intervention in caring for Elijah, for a Gentile widow, and even raising uh, her dead son back to life. It was a pretty incredible story. In chapter 13, we're in the third year of the drought, and God is preparing to bring rain. But meanwhile, Queen Jezebel, wife of King Ahab, daughter of the king of Sidon, is attempting to replace the worship of God with the worship of the the Sidonian deity Baal. Now you may remember there was a civil war, and what had once been the United Nation of Israel is now divided into two, with a northern uh, uh, tribe of Israel based in Samaria, the southern tribe of Judah based in Jerusalem. But uh, Queen Jezebel had built a temple to Baal in the capital and had begun uh, systematically cutting off uh, the heads of anyone who worshipped the Lord. So it is a dangerous time for Elijah, and once again he finds himself on the run. Well, unbeknownst to Ahab and Jezebel, there was a government official in the court of King Ahab who was a God worshiper, and his name is Obadiah, and the Bible tells us that he was a devout worshiper, believer in the Lord. In fact, when Jezebel was exterminating uh, the prophets of God, he took a hundred of them and, and hid them in caves and provided food and water to them. But he's also a trusted official of Ahab, and when it comes time to, to look for supplies for the king's livestock, he sends out Obadiah to help search in the land. And while he's out searching, he runs into Elijah. And Elijah says to him, go tell your master that I would like to talk to him. And I love Obadiah's response. He says, are you trying to kill me or something? If I go back and tell the king where you are and he comes out and and you're not there, he'll kill me. He'll cut off my head like everybody else. You see, Elijah kind of had a way of making himself scarce when he was being pursued. So he says, Elijah, I'm on your side. Don't forget how I saved a hundred prophets. I mean, Obadiah is in a tough place. He loves the Lord. He wants to do what is right. He doesn't agree with the policy of, of his king, but he also doesn't want to lose his head. Ever find yourself in a situation like that? You want to do the right thing, but you know it's, it means going up against the higher-ups. Or maybe it's not going to be a popular thing to do, or or you'll take a lot of criticism for it. I mean, sometimes there is a cost to doing the right thing, uh, of going against um, contemporary culture. You see, what culture would like more than anything else is, is for the church to drop her prophetic role, her high standards, her principles, and her values. I heard about a, a London police inspector who was responsible for training uh, new police officers. And it was his job to to make up this written exam to test the uh, cadet's readiness. And one of the questions was this. Imagine you arrive at the scene of an auto accident, but inside the car is a a high-ranking official caught in a compromising situation. 
Suddenly across the street there is a, a cry for help. The bank is being robbed. And then a crowd begins to gather around the scene. It gets ugly and suddenly this big brawl erupts. What would you do? And the inspector said the best answer he ever got was from one cadet who wrote this. I would take off my uniform and merge with the rest of the crowd. Sometimes, don't you want to do that? <laughs> Strip off your identity as a Christian and just merge with the crowd. And when we want to be less visible or escape a situation that we know we need to confront. The thing is, our baptism reminds us that we are different, that we are God's people. And then we can't compromise our beliefs just to fit in with the crowd. You may know the story of, of Alvin C. York. He was born in 1887 in the Cumberland Mountains of Tennessee. He spent his nights as a young man in saloons getting into bar brawls. The neighbors called him a, a hell-raising, rip-snorting, no-account boy. But at the age of 27, he attended a revival and felt a, a deep conviction that his life needed to change. And about a month later, he, he gave his life to Christ and he joined uh, a nearby church, the Church of Christ and Christian Union, which was, a, and it still is, a, a small denomination that, that broke off from the Methodist Church over the issue of war. You see, this denomination did not believe in violence and took a pacifist view of war. In 1917, America entered the First World War and York was drafted. And though he and his family were intensely uh, patriotic, they believed it was wrong to kill. And so York found himself caught between two conflicting values. He sought conscientious objector status, but he was turned down. And so he took his Bible and went into the mountains where he prayed and, and sought God's guidance for, for two days. He came back and decided that he would join the army. But basic training was terrible. He was ridiculed for his Christian beliefs, for praying, for reading his Bible. And, and other recruits called him a coward because he would not fight. One night, being in agony about what to do, he went in and talked to his battalion commander, who was Major George Buxton, also a committed Christian. And together they began the study of the Bible, and, and Buxton was able to show uh, York that there are times when Christians may need to take up the arms to defend freedom. October 18th, or 1918, while engaged in an offensive against the Germans in the Argonne Forest, York won a shootout with machine guns and captured 132 German soldiers all by himself. And for his bravery, he was awarded the Medal of Honor and the Distinguished Service Cross. And he returned home as a great American hero. A flood of, of job offers came to him, but he turned them all down. York spent the rest of his life working to bring schools to the remote valleys of his home state of Tennessee. An amazing life. And his story reminds us that, that sometimes there can be a cost to standing up for our Christian values. That more often than not, we may find ourselves going against the stream, going against the, the values of our culture if we're going to be faithful. Well, back to our story. 
Elijah gives Obadiah assurance that he will not disappear. And he goes back and he, he tells his king about it. And Ahab goes to Elijah and, and the first thing out of the king's mouth is, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah says, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. For you have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. Pretty gutsy, don't you think? To talk to the king that way. I mean, they didn't have, um, they didn't have First Amendment rights back then. If, if the king didn't like what you had to say, then you were going to end up in jail or something worse. And it's kind of ironic, don't you think, that Jezebel is, is killing the faithful and Ahab is leading people into apostasy, and, and yet he calls Elijah the troubler. I mean, right is wrong and wrong is right. You believe your way, I'll believe my way. You worship your God, I'll worship my God. It's interesting. We, we live in this postmodern, post-Christian, some would even say post-secular age. You know, there used to be five major world religions. Now people make up their own. They pick and choose from two or three different religions, and then they discard what they don't like. It's our, our religion is becoming purely individual. We just make up whatever we want to believe in. You see, part of the gospel story is that humans have been so seriously damaged by sin that, that what they need isn't simply a little bit of self-improvement, but we need an all-out-and-out -out rescue. That we have so, fallen so far away from truth that, that we can no longer find it on our own. The people who have been starved of water, of water for a long, long time will drink anything, even if it's polluted. People who have not eaten for days will literally eat anything if they're hungry enough. Now, of course, there's lots of ways to explain uh, this thirst for spirituality. Psychology suggests that maybe it's wishful thinking or our imagination or the need for a father figure. A science suggests that perhaps we're born with a religious gene. Secularists would argue that the fact that people are thirsty for spirituality doesn't prove anything, that they're just wrong. And most skeptics, however, simply use relativism. Perhaps someone has said to you, your faith is true for you, and, and my faith or my lack of faith is true for me. And while that sounds accepting and, and tolerant, what they're really doing is, is changing the word true to mean something very different. They do not mean a, a true revelation of, of the way things are in the real world. What they mean by true is, is the feelings that you have inside of you are being interpreted as some kind of religious experience. See, that's the fundamental mistake that, that Ahab makes. Baal or Yahweh? Does it really matter who we worship? You see, the source of Ahab's trouble is not Elijah, but it's in himself. But he cannot see that. At least, not yet. You see, it's time for a showdown. Elijah issues a challenge. Let's get as many people as we can on Mount Carmel. Bring all 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. And let's find out who really is God. Everyone gathers. They think it's a great idea. And Elijah says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow Baal. See, Elijah is saying, no more. You can't sit on the fence any longer. He's calling them to make a, a choice. Now, personally, I love to straddle the fence. How about you? 
Sometimes making decisions can be pretty hard. Now, some choices aren't that hard to make. If you had to choose between a Tempur-Pedic mattress and a box springs, which would you choose? If you had to choose between your favorite uh, pair of tennis shoes or some wooden clogs, or if you had to choose between a weekend spa in Italy or a weekend camping in the desert at the hardest time of the year, which would you choose? And if you're like me, most of the time you're going to choose comfort, right? Now, there are times when I choose discomfort, maybe fasting during Lent or training for a marathon or going to the gym or every once in a while saying no to donuts, but most of the time I choose comfort, don't you? But there's a danger to that. Because as we choose more and more to to be comfortable, our, our faith begins to follow suit. And we become Christians that are used to comfort. We want our seats padded in, in, in church. We like our building warm in the winter and, and cool in the summertime. We don't want our coffee too weak. We don't want it too strong. But it's not just a physical comfort. Sometimes we want spiritual comfort. We, we don't want to deal with, with our inner junk, with our stuff. We don't want God to challenge us to go deeper. We don't want to deal with the, with the world's junk. We don't want to deal with the hard issues that our city or our nation or our planet is dealing with, even though the church may have answers for it. And sometimes our padded pews lead to padded messages. I mean, I don't like to preach on controversial issues, but then there's the danger of, of my message becoming simply moral mush. It's not my job to, to say, be a good American, be nice to people. And don't hurt anybody's feelings and you'll go to heaven. And truth be told, we like to think everybody's going to heaven. Well, not everybody. We think Hitler and a few other folks should maybe go to the other place. But but not nice people. Despite the fact that Jesus said some pretty radical things like, the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Or things like, if anyone loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Those words make us uncomfortable. What do we do with the cross? I mean, it's pretty hard to avoid the cross if you're a Christian. What do, what do we do with Jesus' words that he says, to deny yourself, pick up the cross and follow me? It's hard. And a lot of times, we, you know, we say things like, you know, Jesus doesn't really mean for us to deny ourselves. He doesn't really mean for us to take up the cross. Jesus wants me to be happy. Jesus wants me to be comfortable. And if I deny myself, I'm not going to be happy. But not Elijah. Elijah says, choose this day who you're going to follow. And it's really interesting, the response of the crowd. Verse 21, it says this, but the people said nothing. See, they don't want to choose. They want it all. They want a little Baal. They want a little Asherah. They want a little of God. And they're not much different from we are. They want a little pleasure, a little selfishness, a little greed. We want a little bigotry, and we want a little Christianity on Sundays to start off our week. We want to have it both ways. We want our comfort, and we want our happiness. But Elijah, 
challenges that assumption. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and I'll put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call the name of your God, I will call the name of my God, and the God who answers by fire, that is the one true God. And all the crowd says, what you say is good, let's do it. So the terms are agreed upon. Whichever God sent the flash of fire to consume the sacrifice, that was the one true God of Israel. It begins early in the morning. The priests of Baal, with growing frustration and frantic frenzy, they prayed until almost 3 o'clock on the afternoon, and, and not a word was heard from Baal. And then Elijah, he begins taunting them. He, he, he says to all the priests of, of Baal, Your God, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe your God's hard of hearing. Maybe he needs a hearing aid. And just makes the, the, the priests all the more anxious. And then Elijah prays. Fire flashes. Burns up the sacrifice. The people who had not uttered a single mumbling word were now ready to, to sign on with the God of Israel, with Yahweh. And a great victory is won. They fall down on their faces shouting, Jehovah is God. Jehovah is the God. See, what we learn in this story from Elijah is this. That sometimes trouble will come when we waver between two opinions when our hearts are not fully devoted to the Lord, you can't always choose to sit on the fence. It's interesting, the Hebrew word here for opinion speaks of branches or forks in a tree limb or a road. The words falter or waver mean to limp, to halt, to, to hop, to dance, or to leap. And so the question that Elijah is presenting is quite literally something like this. How long will you keep dancing on one foot and then on the other while trying to take both forks of a road at the same time? Elijah says you can't do it. It is yet again one of those moments of truth in the Bible where our double-minded indecision is not only challenged, but sometimes it's condemned. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You'll feel loyal to, to one and abandon the other. It's decision time on Mount Carmel. And it's decision time for a lot of us in our lives. Yogi Berra, the great New York Yankees catcher, expressed a bit of wisdom when he said, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> but sometimes you can't do that. You can't take both forks. To put it right down where you and I live, it's a simple question. Why do we waver? Why do we procrastinate? Why do we hesitate? Why do we delay? Why do we avoid? Why do we deny and all manner of things to keep from sometimes making that clear choice that we have to make, the commitments that really matter in life? I remember some years ago visiting a, a man 
and he was in big trouble. His bad decisions over the years had finally caught up with him, and it would destroy his family and would destroy his life. And he was having a hard time facing the impending consequences. And when I walked in and, and saw him for the first time, the first thing he said to me was this. He said, I am not a bad person. I meant to do better. Pastor, doesn't that count for something? And the truth is that it doesn't. Meaning to do something, intending to do something is far different from actually doing something. People all the time will say to me, Pastor, I, I hope to get to back to church one of these days, or I, I hope someday to, to join a small group. I, I hope someday to, to get involved in, a, in, in regular Bible reading. We put things off. There'll be another day. There'll be a better time. Not here, not now, not us, not me. And because of that, the spiritual well-being of many of us is impaired and, and never becomes what it could be or what it should be because we've convinced ourselves that there's plenty of time tomorrow and we don't want to choose. We don't want to make the decision. We procrastinate and we put it off. In the book of James, it says this, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then we vanish. It's kind of scary to think about that. But the reality is that each of us should live each and every day as if it may be our last, for indeed it could be. St. Augustine said, God has promised forgiveness to our repentance, but he has not promised tomorrow to our procrastination. Why delay? We need to act now upon the challenges of our life and our faith. There are some decisions that you and I need to be making, and we're putting it off. We don't want to choose. But folks, there is no comfort in sitting on the fence. Three military recruiters showed up to address some high school seniors. Graduation was only a few months away, and, and the military men were there to, to share with these graduating young men and women some of the options that the military service uh, could provide them. And each recruiter, representing Army and, and Navy and Marine Corps, had 15 minutes each. Well, the Army and the, and the Navy recruiters got carried away. And when it came time for the Marine uh, uh, to speak, he had only two minutes. And so he walked up to the podium to, to make his speech, and, and he, he stood utterly silent for the, for the full 60 seconds, half of his time. And then he said this. He said, young men and women, I doubt that there are even two or three of you here in this room who could cut it as a Marine. And I want to see those two or three immediately in the dining hall when we're dismissed. That's all he said, and he sat down. And when he arrived at the dining hall, those students interested in the Marines became a mob because he had appealed to the heroic dimension in every heart. I want to give you the same challenge this morning. Most of us know what we need to do. Most of us know what that right decision is that we need to make. Why not make that today? Why put it off any longer? 
God sends down fire. And everyone cries, the Lord, the Lord is God. Maybe God needs to send a little fire down on us this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, there are so many decisions, so many challenges that we face each and every day. But God, some of those, some of those decisions are life-changing. And we put them off. Some of us, God, we know we need to decide. We need to, to decide about an addiction that we're facing. Or we've got a, a marriage that needs some work, God. Or we really need to invest uh, more time into our children. Or God, we need to make a decision about whether we're going to truly follow you or whether we're going to continue to sit on the fence and try to have it both ways. God, help us. We are weak. We are prone to delay. We are prone to procrastination. Oh, God, send down that fire into our lives today and help us to choose a right, we pray. Amen.